Monday, May 5th, 2014. I'm Mike Pesca. This is Slate's The Gist. Over the weekend, I was reading the New York Times. There was an article about the Kentucky Senate race, and it had this phrase about Senator Mitch McConnell. Mr. McConnell, the minority leader, said in his trademark affectless monotone, Whoa! First of all, just because we think the guy can't express tone, it doesn't mean that he has no feelings. That was a little mean, New York Times. And as a description, it's, it's wrong. It's also internally illogical. For something to be trademarked, it has to be distinctive. And affectless, by definition, lacks distinctiveness. Now, maybe you could argue, oh, there's a way to be both affectless and distinctive, like certain robots don't sound like other robots, you know? Danger Will Robinson is one robot. He sounds different from Buck Rogers, Tweaky. But I don't think that you could be both affectless and monotone and at the same time qualify for a trademark. I think it is antithetical to the trademark process. Also, if Mitch McConnell were so affectless, how could Jon Stewart do that killer cartoon turtle impression of him? As an impressionist, you need a little distinctiveness to latch onto. And here's the last point. Mitch McConnell does know how to cut loose. I found this clip. He was doing an interview with the Hoover Institution. This is the Hoover Institution Deaf Comedy Jam. Ladies and gentlemen, the comedy stylings of the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The way the Senate operates, it's not a dictatorship. Um... It's somewhat akin to being a groundskeeper in a cemetery. Everybody's under you, but nobody's listening. (laughs) Wham! Bazingo! You call that affectless? I call that a punchline, people. I call that timing. Coming up on the show, the Supreme Court rules that a town meeting can start with a prayer, even a very Christian prayer almost all the time. And then the greatest guest in the history of the gist, me. I will be the interviewee. The interviewer will be Jad Abumrad from Radiolab. We're going to talk about the show and where it's going and the future of audio. And at the end of the show, like we're going to end every show will be a segment called The Spiel. The Spiel can be funny. The Spiel could be ranty. can be a lot of things. Stay tuned for that. I don't know if we should probably say tuned, right? Stay earbudded for that. And now my conversation with Slate's Supreme Court correspondent, Dahlia Lithwick. Lord, We ask you to give us the insight into the recent Supreme Court decision that allowed a public prayer to kick off meetings in the upstate New York town of Greece. Allah, praise be to you as you guide us through this five to four decision that seems to change established practice. Yahweh, Vishnu, Zeus, the goddess and random cosmic event that produced B-mode polarization effects. We ask if this changes school prayer. And Abraham and Sarah, we thank you for delivering to us Dahlia Lithwick, who covers the courts for Slate. Hello, Dahlia. Hi there, Mike. How big a deal is this? Oh, I think this is a pretty big deal. I think this is a quite a significant shift from the precedent the court looked at until today. And what was that, and what is it now? Well, the, the, the case that they were all looking at was this 1983 legislative prayer case. So this isn't about school prayer or, you know, Ten Commandments on state grounds. This is about whether you can pray before a legislative session. And it so happens that a big, big case in 1983 said, yes, you can, that in the state of Nebraska, who had their own in-house chaplain who offered a prayer before sessions, that's okay. And I should tell you, the gist of that legal analysis was, it's okay because we've always done it. So it's not a really profound constitutional point. It's just, we've always done it. We've had this little exception for prayer before legislative sessions, so we're going to keep allowing it. Public prayer has been allowed, and in that Nebraska case, it was about paying a chaplain with public funds to say a prayer, and it seemed, you know, the 
Senate and the House of Representatives kicks off with a prayer. This little town in Greece kicks off with a prayer. The what Supreme was Supreme Court kicks off with Supreme a prayer. Supreme Court. So what's different? What's the debate? Well, the debate is that this little town in Greece since 1999 uh, has been uh, kicking off sessions with uh, prayer, but for 10 years of that, the only prayers were Christian prayers. In many, many, many of those cases, it was an explicitly, overtly Christian prayer. So this case comes up because two people who are going to the town council meetings, one an atheist and one a Jew, say, hey, this isn't a rotating posse of different prayer givers. This is persistently Christian prayer offered in a town council meeting. These meetings are not like the uh, Nebraska state legislature. These are meetings where citizens go because they want to petition moving a stoplight or they're being recognized or honored. So this isn't just, you know, aimed at the legislature. This is citizens interacting with the legislature, which is quite different. And these citizens who are objecting say, it's always a Christian prayer. Right. Hey, I want to move a stoplight. I think that's addressed in Leviticus 413, (laughs) where they say, so there's also this tension, right? The town says it's a tension between identity and pluralism, I guess. And the town is saying, oh, we tried. We, you know, asked some other people to give a prayer. And the town is also saying, but we'd like to identify ourselves as Christian. That's like part of of what we're doing publicly, right? Well, it depends a little bit who you believe. I mean, certainly in the majority opinion uh, written by uh, Anthony Kennedy today, the town just didn't really do a great job of outreach. When the town put together their list of of pastors and priests, they just forgot to call anybody who might offer a non-Christian prayer, and really that's easily fixed. It's not a systemic problem. Uh, Justice Elena Kagan writes this incredibly strong dissent on behalf of the four uh, more liberal justices saying, oh, no, 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 (laughs) this is not a technical glitch. This is what happens when you have a majoritarian religion saying, we're a Christian town, almost everybody who comes to meetings is Christian, nobody has a problem with this prayer, so stop your belly aching. So whether it's deliberate or not is kind of a factual question that's in dispute, but certainly I think both sides would agree it's whether you shift it to two prayers by Jews and a Baha'i and a Wiccan or many, many more. The fact is it's almost always going to be a majority Christian prayer. Right. And they might not give good prayers, but what a joke that would be should all of them walk into a bar. (laughs) Um, So will this ruling mean that prayer in schools is allowed, is allowed under some circumstances? How will it affect that real hot-button issue? I think not, Mike, and here's why. In the majority opinion, it's written again by Justice Anthony Kennedy, and he's written a very, very significant opinion saying you cannot uh, force or coerce students of minority religions to listen to prayer in schools. He feels that students are uniquely vulnerable to that kind of religious coercion. Adults, he say, just need to have thicker skins. They shouldn't feel coerced by every little thing. He draws a very, very clear line between coercing students and what he says happens here. There's one more thing that strikes me, and it's about this five to four ruling. If you just counted the Jewish members of the Supreme Court, it would be zero to three against. Sonia Sotomayor joined with uh, Breyer, Kagan, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the dissent for uh, this ruling about the town of Greece. And you were also talking about how, you know, one of the rules that Kennedy talks about is no one being condemned to damnation, which is not a concept in the Jewish religion. So it does seem to be a very sort of the entire consideration of this issue. I don't think it would be unfair to say that the entire consideration of this issue was done with a bit of a Christian mindset. 
you look at the array of majority voters in this case, it's certainly clear that they seem to all come from a place of, eh, you know, there's nothing really wrong with a pastor getting up and saying, let us pray. There's nothing really wrong with citations to whatever religious festival or, or specific deity is happening. There's a sense of decorum and correctness. You know, this is just uniting us and calling us to look higher. But I think it is a really interesting thing if you assume, and Kagan does this in her dissent, what if this were Muslim prayer? I mean, what if this were months after months over 10 years of a sectarian Muslim prayer? Wouldn't that change everything? And I think that's one of the questions that's at the heart of this case. It's very easy to say, oh, we all agree to X if it's something that most of us agree to. If we really agree to it, exactly. And by the way, that the town of Greece is nearby another town which is overwhelmingly Orthodox Jewish, and that's exactly what they want to do, mostly Jewish prayers. Right, and there's an argument that this is exactly what the framers were terrified of, right? A country that atomizes into little chunks of, you know what, you don't want to be you know, an Orthodox Jew? Don't live in our town. You don't want to be uh, an evangelical? Go, go to some other town hall meeting. And that, I think, is one of the worries that underpins uh, why we have religious liberties in this country. Uh, but I think, again, you know, this is a useful case to play through your head as what would have happened if this was a Wiccan praying month after month after month. Well, we would have gotten more rain. <laughs> um, <laughs> the crops would have rebounded better. Dahlia Lithwick, peace be with you. And also with you. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts for Slate. Thanks so much, Dahlia. It's my pleasure. Since this is my first show, I thought it would be good to tell you a little bit about myself without actually, you know, just telling you about myself, that being too straightforward, too easy to digest. So I enlisted the help of my friend, Jad Abumrad from Radiolab. Radiolab started out as an experimental radio broadcast, and it's now one of the most successful podcasts out there. Jad interviewed me at WNYC's studios. We started with a tribute to how Radiolab starts their show. You're listening to our Mike Veska. What's the name of your show? The Gist. The Gist. Great first question. The Gist. Yeah. What is it? It's not just sports. No, it's, in fact, you know, when we were philosophizing and planning it out, we said, let's not do any sports. Well, let's do the sports we can ignore. And then like this Donald Sterling story. Yeah. So in our piloting, we did a lot of stories. But it's about everything. Okay. Um, we're going to ha- start off every show with a big, important, newsy-type topic. Okay. And then we'll transition into a cultural or piece of frippery or something that I'm obsessed with, like flags in Vexillology Corner or me rapping. Okay. And then most shows are going to end with me popping off about something or opining or kind of doing a piece, and we call that the spiel. And what is the uh, periodicity of this show? It will be five days a week. It will five days? Get out. Day. You're going to do it daily? Yeah. What, what is you wrong understand. with you? See, what you is understand. wrong with you? People, Why would you do that to yourself? Outsiders don't get it. It is a big lift, even if it's 20-ish minutes a day, right? 
It's a huge lift. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted just thinking about your impending exhaustion. Well, I'm pre-exhausted on your behalf. <laughs> well, then again, Radiolab comes out as frequently as certain yearbooks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are quarterly reports hey, for corporations. Hey, but those, you keep going back to that yearbook, don't true, you? It's true. It's true. To find out I about get, I like Marcy to have, in the fourth grade. I like to have people sign my Radiolabs once they've, <laughs> you're the best, have a great summer, then you don't can't ever believe change. how you looked in that Radiolab. I Oof. know. <laughs> what was I thinking with that hairstyle in that radio lab? But no, so you understand, I think we have different philosophies. Maybe we don't. But the radio you produce is really highly picked over and kind of want it to be perfect. Like, that's your, is that your ideal? It, that's the ideal. We, we slip farther and farther from that ideal every, every day. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's meant to be uh, embroidered and thick and layered and uh, not, not, I mean, it's, it, it should feel like radio feels, which is that it's somehow being thought up in the moment, but it's clearly not. Right. And so my philosophy is to admire that, but also to know enough about my personality that it's really hard for me to get there, but also to revel in, you know, the real kind of jagged stuff. Yeah. To revel in the stuff that's a little loose and could be full of mistakes. If I had a brain like yours, this is not me blowing smoke up your ass. This is actually like a a thought that is genuine. If I actually thought as quickly as you did, I would do the show you're about to do. Okay. I wouldn't do the show that I do, which which is born of a mind that slowly broods and ruminates and comes to conclusions over days and sometimes weeks. I've interviewed you like, you know, dozens of times yeah. and you don't need that amount of time. It just comes out right the first time. Are you a more methodical thinker in general? Associative. It takes me a while to reduce an idea, but it sort of simmers in my brain and then it will I'll get to it eventually. Uh, but usually the first thing out of my mouth isn't what I actually think. It takes me a while to get there. Uh huh. I remember bumping into you 10 years ago and you were, I think you were already at On The Media, but yeah. like, how did, the, how did you get started in this whole nonsense? Well, I always liked radio and we would take car trips, my family and I, to my aunts who lived on Eastern Long Island in New Jersey. And there'd be a lot of talk radio going on and also talking with my dad, who was a social studies teacher. And like the interplay of the two kind of struck me as important. And not just the radio, but talking at the radio. Yeah, well, no, it wasn't that. It was there'd be something on the radio and then my dad would, you know, pivot off that as a chance to uh, okay. make it real to me and like bring this history lesson to life. And sometimes we'd shut it based on something he said. But anyway, it was almost like the it was almost like decent talk radio was a member of my family so my huh. two big and then i remember in fifth grade my dad said to me there's this new guy who i really think you'd like his name's howard stern uh, and now when howard stern was on wnbc he was much more gentle like the, yeah he's a different dude then right the the crate he'd do insult your mother and then he'd have parodies of hill street blues called hill street jews i mean this was cutting edge stuff at the time <laughs> right um anyway sure i love this guy and i would always listen to the radio i didn't know about npr until i think i was in college. And then I found this guy named Leonard Lopate, who was hosting this local show. And I remember, I remember telling Leonard afterwards, I just for some reason, I always imagined you wearing a tuxedo as you hosted the show. Anyway, I applied out of college to be his intern that came to pass. I got sucked into. So he was your gateway. Interesting. He's my gateway. I've gone on to host the show. Yes. I, I don't know if this is true, but especially for someone my age, I have probably hosted more shows in public radio than anyone I know or can think of. But this is my first full-time permanent hosting gig really? that anyone's paying me for. That's uh, amazing. Um, what about you, Jad? What about me? You worked for WNYC like in the newsroom. 
Yeah, let's yeah. see. What, what would my my story be? I, it would go as follows. I uh, uh, 1995. Um, I guess I was four years out of school. I was working in the internet, writing music for films, trying to freelance write. None of it was going well, except for the internet thing, because like you could have a, you know, as long as you had a pulse, you could work in the internet at that point. Uh, and so I got out of that. And so in 1995, I had a sort of come to Jesus moment with my then girlfriend, now wife. And she was like, you know what you need to do? You need to do the two things that you love to do, which is to write and to make music. But you need to do it in a place where they intersect and where you may actually make some money. How about radio? Literally, she had this idea out of the blue. I was like, I've never listened to the radio, but okay. So you're the only man whose life was determined by a Venn diagram. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- this is the Venn. Yeah. This is the one little sliver of real estate that I actually have. I could actually be paid to live in. All right. What do you think I should do on the show? Who should I talk to and what should I talk about? Now, I know that you're branching out. And yeah. I've seen you in many phases. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not pigeonholing you here when I say this. But I'm thinking of a Bob Costas interview with that baseball commissioner dude around the uh, steroid scandal time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was it Selig? Was it Bud maybe, Selig? Maybe. Yeah. And Costas was clearly pissed off about steroids at that moment. Yeah. And he took him to task. And he was like a pit bull. And he wouldn't let the guy dance around the issues. And it was a really riveting interview. And knowing you and knowing yeah. the way that you are... Uh, I want to hear those kinds of interviews from you. I so want to do those kinds of interviews. And when I host, you know, on the media, I've done that. And when I've hosted um, All Things Considered, Weekend All Things Considered, I do stuff like that. Hard to invite people on the show to yes. rip them apart. No, no. I don't mean like the, the attack interviews. I just yeah. mean like, like real, it, yeah, real exactly. fucking conversations and, where like you, mm-hmm. you, you, you hold people accountable. Yeah. And not worry about some imagined listener who will say, ooh, that sounded a little contentious. Like, totally. I, you're dogged. Your yeah. personality has that. Like you're not afraid of like... Like of confrontation, of asking tough questions. I've seen you in that mode many times. You know what else I would, I, I would hope for you? I'm going to pull something from your deep past, which okay. you probably have no memory of. Okay. You did a thing about like all the Starbucks that were in a particular block of time. Yes. And you went yes. around each Starbucks and you yes. drank a coffee at yes. every block. That's right. And you probably had like 12 coffees in the space yes. of 10 minutes. Yeah. And then you were just talking <laughs> in this fucking setting. I, that was fucking glory. <laughs> Listening to your brain work on six cups of coffee yeah. and like doing crazy ass experiments like that. Or here's another one that I remember. It's a great idea. By the way, so that was about 10 years ago. And I think the thing was I was going to go to every Starbucks within a six square blocks of Grand yeah. Central. And you're right. I had 12. Today, it'd be 34. <laughs> <laughs> And every one of your lines was like, I just, if I tap my vein, Juan Valdez will come out or something. <laughs> it was like, you had some crazy ass wave time. And then there's another one where on, on the media, uh, you did a, a story about bass fishing. Bass fishing. Bass is boss. Remember that line? That was from your piece. And you had the single best intro I've ever heard in a piece of radio. Tell me. You have, tell to, me. You have to dig that up. I don't remember it. what it was. But you have to dig that up. And play that in the, in this conversation because it was the single best like thirty seconds of tape. In the hazy early hours, as the birds chirp their morning songs, anglers approach the shore with tackle boxes full of bait and bellies full of the four ninety five breakfast special. They cast a sound more satisfying is unimaginable. Just fresh air, calm water, and the serenity of -of state-of-the-art 64-bit technology with a virtual fishing rod plug-in. Fisherman's bait. 
Challenge. You have a great dynamic range, and I hope I, I hope I get to hear all of that. Like places where you're super thoughtful, yeah, where you're really sort of engaging someone, and then places where you're just like an insane man because you are. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm fearful for you, but also interested as a listener to see what happens. I'm talking to Mike Pesca of the Gist. I'm Jad from Radio Lab. It was a pleasure to be here on my own show. <laughs> <laughs> And now it's time for the spiel, where I say what I like, or what I don't like, or what I want, and what I don't want. I'm going to tell you now, I don't want to live forever. This question is really brought home by Sarah Brightman, as the wind whips the tendrils of her hair, framing her angelic face. And as I bathed in the haunting and entirely overwrought poignancy of the question, who wants to live forever, my thoughts ran to rat blood, specifically rat blood transplanted from older rats to younger rats, which can reverse the aging process. That's according to a study out in the journal Science, which reported on some experiments where the blood of young rats was injected into old rats. It made the old rats spry and clever. It probably made them more eager than ever to eat through important wires, which can cause a blackout. And when the blood of old rats was injected into young rats, it made the young, it made the young rats achy, forgetful, and less likely to hang up a phone efficiently after leaving a message. So good, great, I'm sure that many adult humans will greet this with the trademark wisdom and care that drives people to inject botulism toxin into their face. So yes, the old will now covet the blood of the young, grandmothers will be picking up babies from their cradles, greedily assessing their little baby veins, and of course we're going to get the inevitable New York magazine cover on the new vampirism. Great, there is absolutely no downside to that that I could think of, anti-aging Uber Alice. But I don't want to live forever. I look forward to getting a lot out of this life and hopefully not falling apart like a pair of dollar store pantyhose. I hope to be an octogenarian, maybe a nonagenarian. This won't allow me to see the Jets win the Super Bowl. Maybe I could see a grandchild graduate from college. But I don't want to go on forever. And I especially don't want to spend all my time on Earth strategizing my way to immortality. Ultimately, the idea is indeed that we will not have any particular reason to die on any particular schedule. But the idea is that your probability of dying in the next year would not actually rise as you get older. This is Aubrey de Grey, star of the Live Forever movement. De Grey is 51 years old. He says he looks like 31. Actually, he looks like he's undergone a beard graft from both members of ZZ Top and Rick Rubin. But he's really thin and has sparkly eyes, and I like this part, he drinks a lot of English ale. DeGray thinks we could live to be a 1,000, maybe even 5,000. He points out that we don't have to think of aging as breakdown, and breakdown is inevitable. But even if he's right, in fact, especially if he's right, he misses the bigger truth. We need to die. If we love our children and our children's children, it is the right thing to do, to get out of their way, to give them a chance, to let them start anew, to never find ourselves saying, in my day, we had music. We called him Tyler the Creator and Waka Flock of Flame. Now that was music. I see the desire to live forever as fundamentally selfish. 
absolutely understand wanting to ward off the worst effects of aging, you know, especially if you've ever seen someone suffer through like Alzheimer's disease. And I do hope that the rat studies can lead to some lessening of suffering. I am anti-suffering, or I guess I am pro-rat suffering if it leads to less human suffering. But no, Sarah Brightman, I don't want to live forever. And if death is the only way I have to escape your siren song, then I welcome its cold embrace. Yeah, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. I am pretty hopped up on baby rat blood. And with that disgusting image, we wrap up this inaugural edition of The Gist. To listen to us regularly, you probably know the usual ways, like iTunes. And if you go there, please give us a review, because that helps other people discover the show. You can search for Slate Gist in your favorite podcast app on your Android or iOS device, or on Stitcher. We'll also be in the Slate Daily podcast. There is an interesting new way I want to tell you about to get The Gist every afternoon as soon as it comes out. GabFest or any of the shows, you will find a link to sign up for email. It's very efficient. We'll send you a daily email to your computer or your phone as soon as the episode's available, and you'll be able to play the show right from the email. It is revolutionary in its backwardness. You can also email us at thegistatslate.com and let us know what you think. All of the aforementioned innovations or retrovations were thought of by executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Andy Bowers. The producer of The Gist is Andrea Salenzi, who very much urged me to leave you with the thought of baby rat blood. So I will. And thank you for listening.